bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this privilege of being here this evening. Thank you for making us family. Thank you for giving us a unity that is bound to each one of us through faith. Father, thank you for loving us, for revealing to us your grace, your mercy. Father, we pray for those in the congregation that are ill, that can't be with us this evening. We pray for their return and your good timing, of course. We pray also for those in this world that are lost without hope, that they be humbled by the truth, such as I'm about to teach this evening, Father, and that they receive saving faith. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make an evening like this a time to rejoice in. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, love, hate, and grace, part two. Let's open up with Scripture. Go to Romans 12.9. Nice, healthy way to start off a message like this, just to get us situated. Romans 12, verse 9. Perfect way to start this evening. Obviously, it's a continuation of Sunday's message. So hopefully everyone here listened to Sunday's message at least once. I had recommended you listen to it again. Um, because it was so big, right? I mean, it was an hour and a half long, two to boot. <clears throat> it's weird because tonight's like two and a half. <laughs> Hope you get nothing to do. <laughs> Lock the doors. <laughs> Anyways, Romans 12, 9. Let love be, what's that word? Genuine. In other words, let it be real. Abhor what is evil. You see how close they are to one another? Let love be genuine, but abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. It's almost like a good sandwich, right? And in the middle is this other thing. But you see how close they are in proximity. And that's what the Spirit's really been doing, bringing these two distant enemies together for uh, observation, for consideration. Let love be genuine, but abhor what is evil. And they're intrinsically related because they're opposites. To understand one, you have to have the other and vice versa. Uh, but at the end of the day, the Bible says, hold fast to what is good. Perfect place to start a message on love, hate, and grace. So this verse, I hope you understand, applies to every believer, which means you. Which means you. Abhor, hate, in other words, what is evil. Um, and that applies to you. Sunday was a special message titled, again, Love, Hate, and Grace, and this is a continuation. Um, please ensure that you watch that message if you missed it. Uh, this person watched it again and sent me an email. I'll read it to you. Hi, Pastor. I just listened to Sunday again. And I wanted to share a couple of things I took from the re-listen. 
God's hatred is actually based on the fact that God cannot love unholiness. And God showed his love to the world, John 3.16. But he doesn't love the world personally, as many Christians portray. (coughs) Very true. He doesn't love the world personally, as many people and Christians even portray with John 3.16. He says, I love the two spheres visual. Uh, And I'm going to show that actually in full form this evening. And since he is love, it demands anyone outside of him be hated. But being love, he can't help but shine towards all men, being kind to ungrateful and evil men. And the person says, the chasm he crossed. All I can picture is us standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon, unqualified to get any assistance to get across to his kingdom. Yet he reaches across because of who he is. Thank you for your faithfulness and listening to the Spirit. And then signed, Congregant. So I hope you're encouraged by that. And again, that's from a person that listened to the message again. Um, So I'd encourage everyone to watch Sunday's message again, even if you weren't, or even if you were here on Sunday. Uh, But we're going to have the highlight reel and then move on a little bit more. The Spirit, like I said at the start of the message, has a lot to say on this subject. And so we're going to take our time reviewing, but also he's got some stuff he wants to pepper in. So in context, remember that our messages as of late had us take us to pondering sin itself. That's how this all started. We came upon the idea, the concept, the theology of sin itself. Whenever the issue of sin is placed front and center like that, the gospel conversation is never too far behind. Whenever sin becomes the centerpiece of the conversation, the relief valve, because sin's just so overwhelmingly ugly and awful and treacherous and grating, Amen? It's grating when you think about what sin does, what sin has done to mankind. Um, It's just, it's grating. And so we need that relief valve. We need something to tell us there's relief from that thing. And so, again, whenever the issue of sin is placed front and center, the gospel conversation isn't too far behind. Why? Because without sin... There'd be no reason for the gospel as we know it. There'd be no reason for salvation from something evil if said evil didn't exist, right? I mean, that's the logic. <clears throat> Sin is just awful. I'll quote Charles Spurgeon up here on the board. He, he wrote in his autobiography, I think this is in his autobiography, I had rather pass through seven years of the most wearisome pain and the most languishing sickness than I would ever again pass through the terrible discovery of the evil of sin. I'd rather pass through seven years of the most wearisome pain and the most languishing sickness than I would ever again pass through the terrible discovery of the evil of sin. As the Spirit pointed out on Sunday, 
<clears throat> sin is the reason why everything in this world is such a mess. And you could go ahead, have free reign. Say, oh, I hate this. This is so awful. But yeah, sin. You can thank sin. Right? I hate the way people treat me. Sin. Right? I hate the way I can't go to the forest without being afraid because something might attack me. Sin. Mm -hmm. I hate this. I hate that. Any, all that stuff that's just evil and so evil to you, uh, uh, aggressive towards you, um, it's because of sin. Sin's the reason this world is such a mess. This is precisely what we'd expect based on the Word of God. Go to Genesis 3.14. Genesis 3.14, where God, after the fall, hands down the curse. So what we see is the curse spreads all the way to creation. Not just man and woman, not just serpent, Satan, but creation itself is affected by sin. And so this world we live in is his creation, and the whole of it is cursed. That's the point. And so this is exactly what we would expect. Genesis 3.14, The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's talking about Jesus Christ, actually. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. Genesis 3.16. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband but he shall rule over you. You see the conflict? And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Hold that thought. Cursed is the ground because of you. In other words, the earth itself was cursed because of this. All of creation was cursed. It was a blanket. You see... Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so the point is that the Bible describes the current estate of all creation even as groaning because of the effects of sin. The earth itself has been cursed because of the fall, because of the presence of sin. Paul reflected on this very truth in the midst of his great discourse on justification by faith. That's the book of Romans, of course. Uh, justification by faith in Christ alone. Go to Romans 8.16. Romans 8.16, Paul uh, speaks to this same issue with creation itself groaning as a result of sin. And so again, the point, we're, uh, the point the Spirit's amplifying is that this is what we would expect. The fact that the world's a mess, the fact that we're affected so deeply uh, and so regularly um, by sin and the effects of sin, well, what do you expect? The curse covered it all. Romans 8.16 
The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing. You see, the creation itself is like, come Lord, right? <laughs> for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And then in hope, as we noted earlier up here on the board, I'm just going to insert this, Genesis 3.17, in the Amplified. Then to Adam, the Lord God said, because you have listened attentively to the voice of your wife and have eaten fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it, the ground is now under a curse because of you. And this is what we're seeing here even in Romans 8. Paul is alluding to it, that the, the ground is now under a curse because of you, Adam, because of the entrance of sin in this world. In sorrow and toil you shall eat the fruit of it all the days of your life. Okay, let's, let's continue. Verse 21, Romans 8. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So the, all of creation is groaning, you see, because of this curse that was handed down at the fall in the garden. Verse 23, And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. So again, all that is to emphasize the reason for all the evil in this world is because of the effects of sin. That's what we just read. It's what we would expect. We would expect nothing less. Being born unholy. Sin is essentially corruption. What's perfect in the Lord God is very much imperfect with sin. It's essentially a corruption of the good thing. Uh, and because of that corruption, it means separation from his holiness. As I wrote this week's blog, sin, uh, by definition, means to miss the mark. That's what sin essentially at its base meaning means, to miss the mark. There's a divine standard, you miss it. Anytime you miss the mark, that's what we call a sin. Up here on the board, uh, that's the blog this week, What is Holy Hatred? So it's a sort of a discourse on um, what is holy hatred, because we've got to get that right. We can't go around, you know, quote, <laughs> hating on people. Does that make sense? It's not our job to hate on people. That, our job is to show the love of Christ, you see, not to be hating on people. Do we hate the way God hates? Yeah. Do we hate that there's a disjointedness in this world? Do we hate people that are against him? From a godly perspective? Yes. Yes, that is true. But it's not the kind of emotional hate where we show up at Thanksgiving and start swinging for the fences. Right? It's not, where we're, it's an, it's not an emotional 
hate where we insult people uh, because they're disjoint that way. It's a hatred of sin. You understand? And because that sin is in the sinner, the hatred follows. You hate what you see in them. You hate that that thing is them. That's the point. And that's the way God hates. So just make sure you read the blog. Uh, do that at least twice as well. Um, and I know that the Spirit's, you know, asking an awful lot now these days. What are your other options? Uh, TiVo? Netflix? The game? Or games, plural? I mean, what's it take you? 15 minutes to read a blog? You spend at least that, at least that prepping your couch area to watch the game. It's, is that not a fair statement? Honey, honey, get the dip. I forgot it. Right? Get out of my way. You could be reading a blog. You know what I mean? It's unbelievable. People say I don't have time. I feel like, honestly, that's when my, my um, personal hatred gets crazy. I get, I, I'm like, stop. Don't even say that. Don't say you don't have time. Because everybody has time. If you didn't have time, I'm going to follow you around for a week. And I'm going to show you every time you would have had time. And I guarantee it's hours upon hours upon hours that you have time. I'm tired. You're tired because you don't take the time for the thing that refreshes you. Wait a minute, what? You're tired because you don't take time for the one thing that can actually refresh you. Make your days a little longer, more productive. Just saying. On Sunday, the Spirit gave us license to do something pretty unpopular by today's you know, politically correct standards. The Spirit, based on Holy Scripture, as always, gave us license to hate. Up here on the board, learn to hate sin. Do not be overcome with hate, but rather understand the insidiousness of sin and learn to hate it. God does. Learn to hate it. Not only does the Bible tell us that God has a certain hatred towards sin, since sin is what characterizes the very nature of fallen man from birth, that same hatred is directed towards sinners. It's a hatred for what they represent. You're right? I'm not going to take it any further than that. Go to Psalm 11.4. Psalm 11.4. It's really important that you don't become emotionally hateful in the wrong way. Think about it. I mean, did Jesus walk around slugging people or, you know, berating them because they were unbelievable? No, 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 no. So that's not our job either. Psalm 11, 4. But we have to, listen, folks, we have to accept Holy Scripture at face value. We don't have a choice. If the Bible says that God hates sinners, then guess what? He hates sinners. Do we have to do some more labor to figure out what that means? Sure. That's why we're here tonight, to figure that stuff out. So it won't become, like, you know, crazy and such. Psalm 11.4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. 
the Lord tests the righteousness, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. So he hates the wicked. Any questions? The same Hebrew word we noted in Psalm 5.5, which said you hate all evildoers, is used here up here on the board. It's the Hebrew word sana. For hate, it means enemy, foe, be hateful, odious, utterly. And then there's just a ton of different translations in the New American Standard. Detest, enemy, enmity, foes, hate, hated, uh, hated her intensely, hates, hating, hatred, turned against, turns against, and then seven for unloved. Again, look at verse 11.5. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur in a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. You see? His love is for righteousness. He has a hatred towards unrighteousness. We are all born in unrighteousness. That's it. That's it. Not a one of us is cleansed except by the blood of Christ. That's it. We're born like a filthy rag. That's it. And we have to accept that thing because that's what the Bible tells us. The Lord is righteousness. He loves righteous deeds. But in verse 5 it says his, whole, his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. In other words, the unrighteous. So the reason for the emphasis here on hate is because of the following, at least in part, up here on the board. There's a lot of trickery out there. Um, as a pastor, I spend a lot of time uh, thinking about these things. Like, seriously, a lot of time thinking about these things um, and what's out there and how Satan is successful in tripping up people by spreading false doctrines and using church, churches and, and, and pulpits even, as gross as that is, pulpits even, to spread these lies, to infect churches. So there's a myth on the streets of Christendom that supposes that because, you know, God is love, we can use 1 John 4, 8, it's not the only place where it's stated, but that's one place where it clearly says God is love, 1 John 4, 8, that somehow we cannot hate that there's no, you know, quote-unquote, no room for wrath in him. This is a lie meant to destroy the gospel. You might say, wait a minute, wow, it was good up until then, now what? Wait a minute, what? How does it destroy the, how, how'd you go from there to the gospel? Listen, everything goes back to the gospel. This entire book is about the gospel, whether you believe that or not. This book exists so that we can defend the gospel, so that we can cling to it, so that we can have assurance in it. So that's a lie. This myth that God is only love and therefore there's no hate in him whatsoever. God forbid you say you hate anyone, right? Isn't that taught, that's pretty, that's taught at a pretty young age? But that's a worldly thinking anyways. But somehow this thing on the street that he's so much love that there's just no room left for hate, uh, it destroys the gospel. Consider also 
that this same lie that destroys, that's really intent on destroying the gospel, it also robs you of your peace by supposing that the holy God of the universe isn't really holy at all. How so? Well, a God that's not offended by sin or sinners doesn't have integrity even to himself. If, he doesn't, if he's not offended, <laughs> if he doesn't have this hatred towards sin and sinners, he doesn't even have integrity to himself. Because he's holy, supposedly. And if that God really did exist, then our salvation would need to be called into question. Because then we'd be placing our faith in an untrustworthy God. So do you see what this myth does to God? It first cripples him. But more poignantly, it strips him of his power. But it's by that power that we are saved. In other words, if we can't trust his integrity, then how do we trust his promises? And if we can't trust his promises, then how can we live confidently regarding our salvation in Christ? Because that's a promise. We couldn't. And as a result, we have no peace. Again, up here on the board, contemporary Christianity's myth, there's a myth on the streets of, in Christendom that supposes that because God is love, somehow he cannot hate, that there's no, quote, room for the wrath in him. This is a lie meant to destroy the gospel. Now, reflect on that. <clears throat> Satan in the kingdom of darkness wants you to think that God's not powerful enough to stand up for himself. To say, that's right, I do hate. He wants you to think that God's not powerful enough, that he's maybe politically correct by human sensibilities. That he's not powerful enough to stand up for himself. That's what the kingdom of darkness wants. The kingdom of darkness wants you then to misrepresent him and his son to boot so as to undermine the gospel itself. Think about it this way. If the force of the gospel is salvation from sin, that's the force of the gospel, right? I mean, that's the, the reason for it. It's the force behind it. Oh, man, I need a Savior because I am in sin. Sin's the reason. So if the force of the gospel is salvation from sin, but supposedly God doesn't really hate sin or the sinner, then what or who is there to fear? In other words, why do I need a Savior if there's nothing to fear? Does that make sense? Yeah. If God doesn't hate sin, and therefore the natural sinful estate of man, therefore the sinner, then what does that sinner have to fear? The Bible says the beginning of wisdom, the very beginning, is what? Fear God. 
So if you strip him of that respect, that awe, that fear, if you strip him because he supposedly doesn't hate sin or the sinners, you know, he lightens the load. As much as he lightens the load to that degree, the fear goes down. Is that fair? Right? If you have a, a giant grizzly bearing down on you, your fear is pretty high. Right? But if he's a, you know, a half a mile away and you're in a pickup truck or something, you're like, oh, look at the pretty bear. Do you follow him getting it? You start, you look at him, you're like, oh, I you know, yeah, oh, wow, I wouldn't want to get no close to him, but I'm not close to him, so I don't fear him. That's what today's, today's watered-down gospel, contemporary Christianity has done. They put God way over there, and he's not, even, he's, not, he's not a person to even be feared. What happens when a sinner has nothing to fear? I mean, under those perverted assumptions, how would the following stack up in your soul? Let's say for a moment you had a little lapse. I don't know, you know, just play with, play with this for a bit. Uh, go to Luke 12.4. Luke 12.4. So suppose God's this perverted, watered-down being that, I don't know, has no hatred, there's nothing to fear. What would you be saying if that was your position uh, in the presence of this God, this perverted one, but go with it? What would you say when you read Luke 12.4? What would you say to yourself? What would you conclude in Luke 12.4? I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. But he's way over there and he's just a cute little teddy bear. I mean, you don't get it? What would you say if you read this? You'd be like, that sounds pretty bad, but I'm not feeling it. I mean, it sounds pretty bad, but I'm not feeling it, right? Uh, he's not that scary. Uh, I don't really fear him. I don't even think he has hate in him. I mean, my lying pastor over here said that it's just all love and there is no hate in God. There is no wrath. He's just so full of love that there's nothing that he hates. There's no wrath. And you can see how some, some people actually end up saying there's no hell. That's how it happens. You see, you play with the gospel by perverting God's essence. And the next thing you know, you're saying, well, maybe there's not a hell. Then Jesus Christ was absolutely a liar because he talked about it seven times more often than he talked about heaven. I wonder what he was talking about. And you can see how that carries out. You let the line out a little bit and you see what happens. Again, I ask... What's there to fear if the so-called God, little g, you follow is impotent, doesn't have any power whatsoever to enact something like wrath? What say you in terms of fear of that God? And if you don't fear him because his threats are ineffectual, then why would you ever be motivated to ask him to save you? And for that matter, what becomes of his son in his cross? Concentrate up here on the board. Contemporary Christianity's myth, by making God nicer, 
quote-unquote, a.k.a. more palatable to human sensibilities, you end up making him weaker, which undermines the fear and respect due him and ultimately extinguishes the need for a savior. You don't see it anymore because there's nothing to fear. Again, by making God, quote, nicer, more palatable to human sensibilities, you end up making him weaker, which undermines the fear and respect due him and ultimately extinguishes the need for a savior. In other words, it hacks right into the gospel. Right into the gospel. Takes the force, the, even the force of evangelizing. I mean, how do you evangelize somebody if you don't mention that they're, in, that they're born in sin? Jesus loves you so much that he died for you. And the person's going, why? Why would he die for me? I, there's nothing to die for. That's the watered-down gospel, isn't it? Hey, here's a little coin with John 3.16 on one side, and on the other side it says, Jesus loves you. What about the real issue? Sin. How do you evangelize somebody without the full force of sin in full view? You're certainly not going to do it if you teach some perverted God that doesn't even hate sin or the sinner, the one that's unholy and unrighteous. What's there to be saved from? He's impotent. He's over there. He's a cute little teddy bear. Isn't that what's taught from most Christian pulpits nowadays? You bet. It's disgusting. But you know what's funny? Those churches are filled to the brim. Right? And it's gross. And it's because people will pay to be lied to. That's the fact of the matter. People will pay handsomely to be lied to. Which is why I have so much respect for everybody looking at me right now. Honest to goodness, that is a God to honest truth. I have so much respect for you guys. Because you, you just take it. And you say, you know, that's what I want. I'm hungry for the truth. Just give me the truth. Don't lie to me. Just don't lie to me. Just tell me the truth. It might hurt. It might sting. I may not like it. My flesh is going to go, ooh, that's, ooh, right? That affects me. It affects, it affects my family. It affects my loved ones. I don't like that God hates on my kids or my parents, or my best friend. I don't, you know, I don't like that. Or my coworkers. It bothers me. Good. That's the whole point. It should bother you. It should bother you so much you should tell them about this sin. You should try to evangelize them. Not lie to them. Hey, here's a three, John 3.16 coin. Jesus loves you, babe. Catch you at the game. What? That's the gospel? No, it ain't. That's not the gospel I read in the Bible. To say that God doesn't hate is to misre misrepresent him altogether. For example, go to, uh, actually, Psalm 5.4. Go to Psalm 5.4. That's misrepresenting him. Psalm 5, verse 4. <clears throat> Psalm 5, verse 4. 
Psalm 5, verse 4. I guess that's kind of the difference. I was just thinking of a visual aid, right? That's kind of the difference between us and God, right? Look at verse 4 first. He says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. What do we do? Crap. We don't just dwell with evil people. We marry them. You follow what I'm getting at? Oh, no, no, no. We're going to up... No, no. Not only can we, like, dwell with them, we're going to make a life with them. That's what we're going to do. I'm going to shack up with an unbeliever. Happens all the time. Just had, just had someone leave the congregation because of some unbeliever girlfriend. Yeah. God can't even look at sin. This person's living with it. You follow what I'm getting at? That's the difference between us and God. That's why we cannot apply our scale of values, our system of thinking to the Bible. We can't go, well, well it feels good to me. Feels good to me when I'm with this person. God's like, it's ugly. It's unrighteous. It's grotesque. I hate it. What are you doing? That's the distinction. And so you say, wait a minute, do we really, are our scale of values that far apart? Yes. Isaiah, what is it, 55 8, right? My thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways. He says, don't even, no, don't take any of that and apply it to me. Don't do that to me because you will struggle for the rest of your life. Every time you pick up your Bible, you're going to be like, oh, that's so painful to think about. Oh, my goodness. Oh, that's tough. La, 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 la. And, 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 the, and the commandments are burdensome, not, not burdensome like the Bible says. They, they're burdensome because you, you're applying what you want to be true to Holy Scripture. They don't fit. You see, they don't fit. You want to dwell with evil. The Lord God says, I can't even, I cannot dwell with evil. I can't even look on it. Verse 5, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate, Sane, there's that Hebrew word again, you hate all evildoers. That's the heart of God. And just who does God hate in this passage, among many others, up here on the board, all evildoers, from Karl, Paul, Avin. Trouble, sorrow, wickedness, uh, excuse me, all workers and doers, trouble, sorrow, wickedness, literally translates all workers, doers of trouble, sorrow, and wickedness. Right? That's all an unbeliever can do, by the way. So the context points to unbelievers who do this work as a function of their fallen nature. And so God hates that person with a godly hate, with a holy hatred. So we were given other translations up here on the board for amplification in the Amplified. Uh, Psalm 5.5 reads, The boastful and the arrogant will not stand in your sight. You hate all who do evil. And then Darby's up here on the board. Insolent fools shall not stand before thine eyes. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. There's really no uh, getting around it. Uh, in contrast to this hatred is God's affection for his children. Believers, in other words. Go to Romans 4, verse 7. In contrast to that, we have Romans 4, 7. Which actually quotes David in Psalm 32, 1 and 2. But we'll read it here in the New Testament. Since it's the mind of Christ and it doesn't matter where it appears, right? Romans 4, 7. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered... 
Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. That's literally the polar end, the polar opposite end of God hates all evildoers. Unrighteousness, unbelievers, my own children, believers. Cursed, born cursed, redeemed, born again, blessed. Polar ends. So I promised up here on the board, here's the visual aid. Uh, on, the, on your right is the sphere of God, right? So think of the sphere of God as all, anything good. All good things are from heaven, right? That's in James. So all good things, all, you know, good, what do I have up there? I have love, security, contentment, and peace. Now take sap is a good word. Sap. Anything good about any of those things, love, security, contentment, peace, what are you left with? Well, you go outside of the sphere of God to the sphere of sin or spiritual death. And you have all the opposites because God's greedy like that. He's a jealous God, right? He's greedy. He says, no, 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 no. I have good. I have love. I'm, I have contentment. I have peace. I have all good things for me. I'm the source of all good stuff. So if, 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 if he's like that super magnet and anything good, any particle of goodness goes whoosh, whoosh, into his sphere, there's nothing left. It's all the opposites. And that's what you get outside of the sphere of God. Hate, insecurity, malcontent, unrest, on and on and on. And that's all he's been saying is think of it that way. Sphere of God, sphere of not God which is what we call spiritual death. Spiritual death, by definition, just means separation from God. That's the distinction, right? If God's got the market cornered on everything good, then everything not good, all the opposites, are over there. That's all he's saying. That's all he's saying. So if you abide the way you're born, and you remain and you die in your sins, guess what? You are in the sphere of hatred. God looks at that sphere and says, I hate it. Because it's not me. I'm holy, perfect, righteous. That's not. That's the opposite of me. There you go. When you fully understand God's nature, then you expect him to hate the way he does. Thinking more practically, up here on the board, I think we got this on Sunday, the direction of God's hatred. If God only hates sin, then why does he cast some away from himself, from the sphere of love, let's say, namely unbelievers who die in their sins. Could it be to preserve the purity of love itself? Could it be the just and righteous thing to do after all? He said, listen, I can't have you here. I'm perfect. You're way over there. The only way you can get here is if I impute my son's righteousness to you. If I cover all your sins at the cross. That's the only way you can come and be with me. And that's what I want. I desire everyone. It doesn't happen, but my desire is there. Do you understand? That's all this is. That's all this is. Sin took the world that way and placed us in the sphere of spiritual death. Dying you shall die. <coughs> that's the curse. And the only way back is through Christ. So during our uh, scriptural analysis of God's holy hatred, we noted Jesus' words. In John 3.16 and 4. Go to John 3.16. 
And this actually harkens back to um, that congregant who wrote that email, um, who made uh, an astute observation that God doesn't love the whole world personally. Uh, how could he? And say that he hates evildoers. I have my druthers about that word, but we'll hold that for another day. John 3.16 reads, For God so loved the world, you can see how easily you could misconstrue that, misrepresent, tell an unbeliever in their sins that God loves them for who they are, as they are. That is a lie. That is a lie. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. In other words, they're blessed. Uh, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. They're cursed. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. People love it there, in other words. There's a certain gravity there, right? The flesh loves the flesh. The flesh loves to, to sin. Why do you sin? Because your flesh loves to sin. That's why, you see? The flesh hates the light because its deeds are exposed, right? Verse 20. Oh, I just... Cat out of the bag. Right? What do you call that? Trail alert? No, what do you call that? Spoiler alert. Trailer alert is forget it. When you <laughs> moving right along. Verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. You see, it's mutual, right? In our sins as unrepentant, unredeemed people over there, how we're born, we hate the light. It literally says it in Holy Scripture. Doesn't it? I mean, we just read it. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Up here on the board, hates the light. This is the most natural thing of all for the wicked. In fact, it's exactly what we would expect from unbelievers because they exist in the sphere of spiritual death. Again, spiritual death just means separation from God, who is love, which means they abide in hatred towards God. Verse 21, But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. As I mentioned on Sunday, I believe, personally, you can contend with me, because I'm not God, so I don't know, but I'm just saying, in my personal experience, the vast majority of Christians don't even understand John 3.16. That I am convinced of. Now, it doesn't matter what I'm convinced of. You can have your own uh, opinions about such a thing. But based on my conversations and my experience, uh, no. Most people, they use it as a punchline. Right? Um, and sadly, it's, it's most often used out of context. But... At some point, nonetheless, you personally, this is the point, need to reconcile the likes of, say, Psalm 5.5, God hates all evildoers, <laughs> with the likes of John 3.16 through 18. For God so loved the world. 
you have to reconcile that. That's the same as me saying you need to, in general, reconcile the fact that God hates sin and those still in the sins, and he is simultaneously love. You need to reconcile that. He hates sin and sinners, but yet he is love. You need to reconcile that. Until you do so, you will be missing out on understanding the fullness. This is where I love this. I love where this is going. Because once you have that in your soul correctly, then you understand the fullness of his grace. You understand the fullness of his grace because on one hand, he hates. And then on the other hand, he is love. And so a person in their sins is infinitely away from him. But yet his grace crosses that chasm because of his love. And it's not for them. It's not because of who they are as unbelievers, haters of light. It's because of who he is. And that's when it really clicks. And that's when you start saying, whoa, that's grace. The purpose of the past two messages is also the crux, it turns out, of the gospel of Jesus Christ up here on the board. Here's the gospel. God, in his infinite grace, reaches out across the chasm to those he hates and says, I will save you, deliver you from the throes of spiritual death if you accept my offer, my son. That's the gospel. He said, I found a way. He goes, you are hopeless, helpless. But I found a way by grace. And when you understand how much you can even relate to this, can't you? Can't you relate to that? Like, um, I don't know. Maybe it's a bad example because we can't love like him. But if you, if, you, if you really have a strong desire against someone, like, oh! But yet, because of who you are, you reach out to them and you reconcile with them, you initiate reconciliation to them, you know that's a big step. That's not a baby step. That's when you become like a, a grown-up. <laughs> you know when people say, be the bigger person? Yeah, well, God's really big. We never cross a chasm like that. We, we, we have a problem crossing a table to shake someone's hand or something after they've offended us. <laughs> right? Can you imagine being God? He's perfect. You're not, and you're, and you're holding grudges when God does it. That's why he says, be merciful the way I'm merciful. Love the way I loved you. Do that. Love people for who you are. Be a bigger person, because that's who I am. It ain't about them. It's about you. It's about you becoming like me. That's what sanctification is. And think of the freedom. Because now all of a sudden, wait a minute, you mean I'm free to love? You, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You mean I'm not enslaved to other people loving me? I'm not, I don't, my self-worth is, is now divorced from what other people think of me? Yep. How's that for freedom? 
You mean, wait a minute, you mean I can, I can rise from my bed and go to bed at night in the sphere of love? Yeah. And, I, and I'm going to enjoy that thing. I'm going to have contentment and peace. And I'm going to abide in this love? Yeah. That's freedom. That's peace. That's contentment. And it doesn't matter what's going on around you. You see the benefit to yourself even? It's just a reflection of God. God loves himself. He's abided in love. He is love for all of eternity. So what's the key then? What, what's going to set you free like that? The truth. What do you think I'm doing up here? I'm teaching you the truth so that you can be set free like Jesus was, intrinsically, like God is, eternally. You understand? Like, that's what sanctification is. It's not about becoming a, uh, a bigger and badder, uh, you know, scriptural giant or some educated genius in the Bible. It's about being set free. It's about becoming like him. That's why I've said from this pulpit unabashedly, the most mature people I know tend to know the least scripture because they don't have any hang-ups. They just love Jesus and they abide in this love. And, and some of you look at them like, and you suffer. And they're like, blah, blah, blah. they're totally free. You suffer. What gives? Yeah, I know. It's crazy, right? But that's God, and that's what sanctification is. He says, I want you to be like me, so you get a taste of what it's like, eternal love. I want, I want to give you a taste of what eternal love is, even now. I want to give you a taste of it. I want you, I'm going to sanctify you to the point where, on an evening like this, you go, ding. He might be onto something. I never thought of it that way. See, I'm so, self, I'm so self-absorbed, right? We're, we're born egocentric. We drag this fleshly thing around. And it's all about me, 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 me. Nobody cares about me, 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 me. It's like, oh, stop. You're miserable because all you can look at, all you think about is you. That's why you're miserable. Because you're a self-centered, selfish person. And Jesus Christ was literally the exact opposite. Greater love is no one than this than he laid down his life for his friends. Who said that? Him. And who is more free than him? Nobody. More blessed to give than to receive. Who said that? Him. And who is more blessed than him? Nobody. You get the, you get the pattern here? Right? Completely selfless. Completely selfless. And nobody had more peace and freedom than him. Completely selfless. To the degree you don't have selfless, and on that continuum, you move towards selfish, to that very same degree, you suffer. You are at a loss of peace, contentment, happiness. Why? Because it's all about you. And as soon as it becomes all about you, the thing you're protecting, the thing you get up in the morning and say, huh, what can I do for me today? 
Who can I manipulate to make me feel good today? Me, 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 me. Rather than getting out of bed and go, what can I, God, you woke me up. I still got a purpose here. Yes, you do. Who do you want me to help? You want me to go evangelize somebody? You want me to go talk to, you want me to go encourage somebody? You want me to give some, you want me to, instead of being like this till my fingers are all screwed up, texting and playing stupid apps, like maybe I, maybe I text somebody I love and go, you know what, I love you. Right? And I'm so glad you're saved. I'm so glad we're going to spend eternity together. I'm so glad for you. I know you've had a tough go at it lately, uh, et cetera, et cetera, whatever that thing is. As long as it's called today, what are we called to do? Encourage one another. Yeah, I know. It's all about the gospel, my friends. It's all about the gospel. And that kind of truth, I don't know about you, and I ran out of time, so guess what we're going to have on Sunday? Um, Maybe part three, two and a half, I don't know. Right? Does the title even matter? No. But it's all about me. I said the title matters. Me, 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 me. My ministry. My, my, my. (laughs) See how long that lasts. I might not be here on Sunday. (laughs) Oh, man. That kind of, it makes us weep. When I think about that, the magnitude of his grace, when I think about the gospel, uh uh-uh, fully, the fact that he, wait a minute, wait a minute, he hated me? Yeah. With a holy hatred, he hated me. The holy, sovereign God of the universe hated me? Yes. But yet, because he's love, he reached out to me and saved me? Yep. Yep. First Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. Right? Rejoice always. Knowing that, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing, anybody? How do you begin every prayer? Thank you, Lord. Be thankful for everything, because that's what's pleasing to the Lord. How's that for the sphere of love? How's that for a grace gift on an evening like this? To think about God's grace in light of his own hatred is simply mind-blowing. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us the truth that sets us free. We just ask your blessings as we take the things we've learned back to our homes, back to our families, back to the privacy of our own soul. Father, we ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.